This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Easter eggs, accidents or clever inclusions, delving into Disney fan theories. So, we are now a month into 2023, and so far we have done a fair few episodes about writing craft, trope examination, and things like that. Um, And, look, I'll be honest, uh, both Jules and I have had a bit of a slog. Yeah, it's been a a trying month. (laughs) It it really has been. Um, Yeah. It's, it's been a very difficult month so far so we felt that actually perhaps a lighter episode uh, where we look at something that's a bit silly but also a bit fun was a good call and hopefully for anyone who's also got a bit of the sort of the January blues and things like that this will also kind of be a sort of a nice soothing massage <laughs> <laughs> yes bombed the soul yeah um, I mean, the other thing is, this isn't this isn't just us doing a sort of like, oh, let's do a let's do a silly episode that doesn't really have any value. I mean, it, there's always value in sort of looking at something, assessing it, and thinking around it. So, yeah, um, it, it's good in that respect. Madeline and I like to include Easter eggs in our work for each yes. other, and for also <laughs> and also for the fans. Um, and generally, we enjoy spotting Easter eggs in other people's work as well. Yeah. Um, now, clearly those involved, as, as Jill sort of mentioned, um, in making popular Disney films um, do feel the same about that. Um, and there's definitely a few inclusions that are just a little bit too specific to be coincidental or accidental. So obviously we pick Disney because it has the benefit of being a huge body of work, which now spans, well, a century. Um, and one which most people are familiar with. Um, obviously, there are the huge bodies of work which l- love their Easter eggs. You know, we could have been looking at, at sort of Marvel in particular or, or most of the sort of, you know, games and things like that. But Disney, as we said, has the uh, the benefit of being pretty much everybody has watched at least one Disney movie. So Definitely. Um, these Easter eggs and inclusions in Disney films have given rise to some pretty intricate and often compelling fan theories. From a writer's perspective, fan theories are fascinating because they give you an idea of how readers are gelling with your work. I, I love it when someone presents me with a fan theory. I can't confirm or deny, but I'm like, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> or even sort of like, no, you're so close to working out my plan. Um, it, it's really flattering when, when someone is so invested in your work, they put that amount of thinking time into it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and <laughs> I think also it, there is a there is something very, very enjoyable about kind of weaving small puzzles in and then seeing people solve them. You know, yeah. people recognise and acknowledge them. That is a great feeling as well. Yeah, I mean, you haven't written anything until you've had Madeline sort of shouting at you via text, I knew it! <laughs> or something similar. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor Jules <laughs> has to get used to me texting her. Usually at, in the very early hours of the morning. By early hours in the morning, I mean 
between sort of 12 and 4 in the morning, like, aha, aha. And I'll get up at sort of about half past six, quarter to seven, to this slew of messages of like, I knew it's the whole eureka moment. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's great, obviously. Okay. So with that in mind, um, <laughs> we've rounded up a selection of what we think are some of the best Disney hot takes and fan theories. We're going to take it in turns to look through them and then discuss each one, perhaps bringing up our own counter thesis or counter theories. Uh, so I guess buckle in, because some of these are going to be wild. <laughs> Would you like to go first? I would like to go first. Okay. Okay, so we're going to start off with one of my favourite... I know it's... I say more recent. I know it's not actually that recent anymore, but one of my more recent Disney films... Don't say that! (laughs) ...is Moana. Um, And the theory is that Hey Hey, the chicken from Moana, is actually a guardian sent by the gods to aid her on her journey. Now... He's a chicken, but he hasn't aged since Moana was little. So that is a very long-lived chicken. (laughs) He also somehow survives very dangerous situations, despite the fact that he clearly isn't intelligent enough to eat without being prompted. (laughs) So maybe he's being kept alive by supernatural forces. I mean, uh, first off, I just want to say that a chicken as kind of like a companion animal sidekick is is an unusual choice yeah but i kind of like it in moana um yeah the fact that nobody's looked at him and gone wow that chicken's done we should just roast that one we don't want him you know spreading his seed to the rest of the flock (laughs) it's like yeah Yeah. clearly he's protected by the gods or he's moana's special friend or something (laughs) yeah he's he's clearly something but we we don't whatever it is we don't want it bred um into the rest of them or maybe you do maybe it's actually better to have a stupid chicken um well i guess it makes them easier to catch yeah um what's interesting is that in its original conception people pointed out that on some of the original moana posters and stuff like that hey hey actually looks really fierce and it was because originally his character um was actually going to be more akin to like a guard dog so he was going to be like an attack chicken and then (laughs) later on in production quite late in the game they changed it so that he wasn't this attack chicken he was just this complete (laughs) dumbass (laughs) Um, but it's why if you look at some of the original posters yeah you see hey hey looking weirdly fierce um and like competent and stuff like that which i think gives rise and sort of supports the theory um but i don't know for me i think it's it is just a a great fan theory and it's one of these ones where you can absolutely you can accept that as canon because it doesn't actually really change anything um i'm not sure that it was done on purpose though no i'm not sure it's done on purpose but as a theory i'm kind of like yeah this validates that chicken's existence so let's go with it yeah and actually i mean in the end despite the fact that the chicken causes a lot of trouble the chicken actually weirdly enough also kind of helps in weird ways like sometimes when he's trouble he actually ends up triggering things which are ultimately helpful or lead them to the right path you know yeah 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 that is true so i like it 
like it. Okay, okay all right. Take us through the second one. <laughs> okay, this is this is pretty wild. But the more you look at it, the more it's like, okay, this person kind of had a point. Um, Lilo and Nanny's parents in Lilo and Stitch worked for the CIA. So Mr. and Mrs. Pelliquet died before the beginning of the film, but Cobra Bubbles may hold the key. Uh, Cobra Bubbles was once a CIA agent involved with alien contact, but mm-hmm. walked away to become a social worker, which is a huge career change. You know, people yeah. don't generally go from being spies to sort of like, I'm going to do social work in this area. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, of course, he didn't change career and was just undercover as a social worker. It would explain why he doesn't remove Lilo from Nani's care, why he's still involved with um, and why he's still involved with the family so let's say that Lilo's parents were once his colleagues so they worked for the CIA too um, then you've got Lilo's interest in photography maybe down to her father taking her on low-risk surveillance operations because no one will look twice at a father and small daughter taking pictures and having fun hmm. um, then you've got Lilo's strange taste in books so for example books on oyster farming um, which aren't really age appropriate for her but then she perhaps encountered a wide range of topics amongst her parents' book collection, which they used for research for various assignments. And then there is the big question, are Lilo's parents really dead, or are they in witness protection? Wow. <laughs> I mean, to start off with, someone presents that, and you're like, what? And then you read it, and it's like, actually, there is kind of a, th- a, th- a through thread here. Yeah. I think that would make it for an engaging fan fiction. Definitely. Um, but, and I, I I do see, I think, to be honest, the most credible thing is why was Bubbles a, <laughs> a social worker? Um, and <laughs> another part of me goes, maybe it was literally because he just suddenly went, actually, I don't want to be a spy. I want to, I want to go and help children or, or something like that you know you could you could sort of see it in terms of his sort of journey in that that direction um i like the theory but i it's not one that i would credit not least because actually it makes me it, it kind of ruins the whole family dynamic for <laughs> it's me, very then. uncomfortable I, I have to say cobra bubbles isn't a very good social worker though is he because he's kind of watching this absolute train wreck of a situation where i mean nanny's got no idea how to be a parent and really she's too young to be given custody of her small sister and it is kind of them being together and and kind of um forming a new family unit i mean that's kind of the point isn't it but uh, but if you look at logically from an outside disney universe perspective it's like he's a terrible social worker in that respect (laughs) yeah I think one of the things that's very interesting for me, sort of looking back on some of the scenes as an adult, was that as a kid, I remember being really annoyed at Lilo because I was just thinking, why you need her, you need Nani, why are you jeopardizing it? And I actually real, and there was this, you know, this line where, you know, Bubbles actually says to Nani, you need her more than she needs you. And I suddenly went, actually, yeah, that is what the situation is. Um, Lilo actually would have been better off with an adult, with, with you know, two yeah. parents even, um, you know, and in, in a more kind of stable environment. And Nani would have been better off actually then also then being able to pursue what she actually really cared about and wanted to do instead of having to basically become a parent 
when she was still very very young i mean this was a this was a woman who was you know um an award-winning surfer and yet you see that she's not really doing that anymore you know because uh, clearly she doesn't have time to yeah. do that anymore uh so it, it it did sort of strike home in that respect uh, which i guess is also why the concept that her parents could still be alive hurts that's even really more. troubling so they went into witness protection and maybe the safest thing was to leave their daughters behind but that's awful <laughs> Yeah, and but maybe it was also that actually, if if they were in witness protection, maybe Bubbles taking, you know, Lilo away was that he was actually going to take her to her parents. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. I think, but but then he he doesn't. I, I, yeah, I'm. I think it's a good cool theory, no, but I, I don't. I don't, I don't think it holds it. water <laughs> overall. But I can see why somebody would get that. Yeah. Okay, I've got an even darker okay. one for you now. Um, Eeyore the donkey from Winnie the Pooh was once a human child. So, uh, there's a lot of discussion over whether the gloomy donkey has clinical depression, but this theory actually looks at why that might be. So the theory is that unlike the other denizens of the Hundred Acre Wood, Eeyore was originally a little boy, but he ended up on Pleasure Island, as depicted in Pinocchio, where he was turned into a donkey and enslaved. He managed to escape and eventually encountered Pooh and Piglet and the, the rest of them, but he cannot stop mourning what he lost. See, that is really, really dark. That's super <laughs> dark. <laughs> and, uh, okay, in terms of someone sort of drawing connecting lines between films, yeah, I Okay, the, the part of me that is a macabre little goblin does like it. But um, I have to say, because obviously I came to Winnie the Pooh through the book books first and then the film, and I'm well aware yeah. that all the animals in the, in the Hundred Acre Wood are basically toys, children's toys, and that Eeyore has a tail that can be nailed on and he's clearly got stitches that are loose and stuff. It's like, in that respect, it doesn't, yeah. hold, it doesn't hold water for me. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I'm I more like to think that Eeyore does in some way hold more of a representation of some of the emotions that the author was going through as a survivor of the World War with massive PTSD. Yeah, it was just um, it was just a case of there is this part of me that is always going to feel kind of sad and disconnected. Um, and it, mm. this donkey represents that part of my personality and all these other animals are kind of just very accepting of it or they never tell him to cheer up they never I mean they they just include him and in some ways that's kind of I think that's a lot nicer in a lot of ways than um than than the idea of oh well here is this really sad depressed person let's just throw them a party and cheer them up and it it you know that's a, a facile kind of answer isn't it have to, has to be said that in yeah. the book Eeyore's not really gloomy Eeyore's more sort of cynical yeah he sort of expects bad things to happen yeah he's a massive yeah. pessimist <laughs> but um, there are people who, you know he's he's a stoic he's um 
there are, there are people who find a lot of comfort in sort of starting from the worst case scenario and working forward to a more positive outcome. And it could as easily be that. Yeah. Yes, in the film they've exaggerated it and made him quite depressed. Yeah. I think also, though, it... it yeah, it, for me, whenever I saw it, I did think this is, you know... Um, an avatar of those emotions um which is if you expect the worst case and you know expecting the worst case scenario is very safe because either you are right and you've already prepared yourself for it or you're wrong and you're and that's fortunate yeah um but yeah it also kind of puts you in a stationary place and it means you can never really relax um. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely okay um the next one i think is quite a commonly known one and i think even people who haven't delved into disney fan theory probably picked this up but um the book yeah. bell reads at the beginning of beauty and the beast is actually another famous disney film now if you remember the song at the beginning of the film bell where all the villagers are singing about how weird she is because she likes books and she doesn't want to just settle down and get married. Yeah. Um, there's a part where Belle's describing her favourite book, and she says, Far of places, daring sword fights, magic spells, a prince in disguise. And some people felt that this was Disney predicting their next film, which came after, which would be Aladdin. Um, but if mm -hmm. you think about it, that doesn't entirely fit, because Aladdin was disguised as a prince. He wasn't really a prince in disguise, unless you're being very metaphorical. Um, yeah. and you know daring sword fights it's a bit that's stretching it a bit whereas other people think it was Sleeping Beauty and if you look at the illustration in the book when Belle is describing that bit or when she's when she's talking mm. singing to the sheep in fact um, it looks a bit more like something that would fit with Sleeping Beauty yeah yeah I could totally I could totally um, agree with that weirdly enough the 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 funniest fan theory I've, I've heard about the sort of um, Beauty and the Beast and Belle isn't actually so much about what the the contents of the book is it's why the hell there's a bookshop in oh, a God. town where nobody's apparently reading and the owner is just happy to lend out books how is he making money and someone said clearly it's a money laundering I saw that and I was like <laughs> Thanks, I hate it, but yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> it's like every, the only person is, who goes to the shop is Belle, apparently, and he doesn't take money from her. He just loans her books. I'm like, okay, how are you staying open? <laughs> Good point. <sighs> okay, the next one. Jane from Tarzan is descended from Belle from Beauty and the Beast. So they look a little bit alike and apparently they love the colour yellow because everyone knows that we inherit the colours that we like from our yeah. ancestors. Uh, but during the tea service scene, the teapot looks very like Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast and one of the matching teacups has a small chip. So could the tea service be an heirloom passed down from a great, 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 great grandmother, Belle? Um, no. I mean, we have to assume <laughs> that it wasn't I... the only tea service that looked that, that was done in that style. 
I love it as a theory, yeah. and it's very um, noticeable. But I think it's mostly noticeable because she's bringing out a tea service in the middle of the jungle, <laughs> for one thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And to be fair, um, you know, you have had a whole bunch of these um, kind of presented where Disney will include their characters from other things just as little sort of toys and stuff like that or, or background kind of things. For example, um, Scar turns up as a nice yes. throw rug in uh, Hercules which is the whole joke in The Lion King, of course, which is that he'd make a nice throw rug. And just think, when he when he annoys you, you can when he gets dirty, you can take yeah. him out and beat him, um, which is literally what happens in Hercules. Um, and I think it literally is just a, a reference. Um, I would say if we take in the idea that actually, yes, that is the same teapot set, that's a very dark thing because, of course, they turn back to humans. Yeah at the end when the curse is broken so how did they turn become teapot and cup again did they revert when they died is she drinking from the corpses of of mrs potts and her child that would be very disturbing i wonder if maybe they didn't really explicitly do it in beauty and the beast but actually the servants and the furniture had been had been merged somehow and then the spell just sort of separated them again yeah i mean the 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 big thing of course is that if have you seen if, the same meme I have? If it was that they all just got turned then yeah, it's just suddenly a castle without any kind of furniture, which is not great, to be fair. Uh but also how many children did Mrs. Potts have? Yeah, that's that's a lot. And and why is it that yeah, we only ever see Chip at the end come running to her? What about the like the other sort of thirty that she <laughs> She had. What's going on there? It's um. Also, how? I mean, to be honest, I know it's a huge castle and everything, but how many servants did you have? There must have been some furniture that was just furniture. There must be. I mean, the the meme I'm talking about is Beauty and the Beast to the trip to IKEA because they need some damn furniture now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe also maybe it's that the servants got turned into furniture, but then also some of the furniture just was made sentient and then stopped being sentient which is really horrific and you're like oh no my good friend is now now no longer that's, that's still really upsetting isn't it that's um god that reminds yeah. oh god i was almost went off on a tangent there but there was a my little pony like 45 minute short where they had to fix up their house and they were all too lazy to do it so they got magic paint and the magic paint made everything sentient and then yeah, which was really <laughs> disturbing because all the furniture started telling them off for leaving the house dirty and what and what have you, um, except for the baby buggy, which would just sing lullabies to the, this baby pony. And um, then they managed to do something to reverse that effect. So everything that was sentient stopped being sentient and it was fine again. Um, but of course, the baby pony was getting into her baby buggy and it's like it wasn't going to sing to her anymore. It was really upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, it's sort of, it, this is supposed to be a fun light thing and yet you've put this thing in at the very end and then you know in an eerie way without being sentient and suddenly growing a pair of eyes this baby buggy just started singing the lullaby by itself like it was fucking haunted by the ghost of its previous sentience okay that's yeah. horrifying <laughs> 
Yes. Sorry about that tangent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Elsa and Anna are Rapunzel's cousins, so it's pretty hard to disagree since Eugene and Rapunzel are clearly seen arriving at Elsa's coronation, which, since Tangled is set yeah. in Germany, puts them on the VIP list, probably. You know, basically a state visit. Um, yeah. In addition, both Elsa and Rapunzel have powers that look pretty but are kind of weird, so glowing hair, snow and ice making hands. It would also explain why Elsa's parents were so intense about Elsa keeping her powers quiet. Um, one of their cousins was abducted as a baby because of her own strange power. Yeah. Though, to be fair, I don't... Obviously, the parents didn't know about the fact that their child was magical, but they did know that magic had been involved in yeah. sort of saving her. So, yeah, I could totally see that. Um, at the very least, even if they're not cousins, I can definitely see it all being set in the same I mean, to be world. honest, if we're talking, you know, um, sort of European monarchy, yeah, they're cousins. Yeah, cousins. <laughs> they might be second or third or twice removed or whatever, but they're probably cousins. <laughs> okay, alright. Uh, now, speaking of uh, Frozen, the tragic voyage of Anna and Elsa's parents actually links the three films. So, another Tangled connection is that the King and Queen of Arendelle were sailing to attend Rapunzel and Eugene's wedding when a storm sank their ship. If we assume Arendelle is somewhere around Norway, this would make sense because they would have been on the North Sea, which is obviously very treacherous even in summer. Um, and it would have been a visit of state. This also puts them in the vicinity of the ship that Ariel discovers at the beginning of The Little Mermaid to have been um, to have been the sunken Arendelle ship. It's not impossible that it could have sunken off the coast of Denmark and it was apparently loaded with expensive items, gifts for political visit to a royal wedding. Now, of course, this is a great theory, um, but it was a theory which was obviously postulated after the first film and has now been disproven by yeah, the second so they, film. Yeah, they added a map in, didn't they, which kind of made it look like pretty impossible to do. Um, but in terms yeah. of just looking at well, a fan theory, that's that's brilliant. And also, if I just say the next one, because it kind of links into it, so we may as well discuss it with it. But alternatively, yeah. the King and Queen of Arendelle didn't die. They ended up as castaways. Uh, washing up on the coast of Africa, where they survive by making a treehouse. The queen later gives birth to Tarzan, and then the parents are unfortunately killed by a leopard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do remember it's, this it's whole thing. It's wild, theory. isn't it? It's um, like, let's link yeah. these four disparate it, films together. It's like, um, okay, again, you, it's like the CIA thing with Lilo and Stitch. It's like, there's a through line there, I can see it. But... Yeah. Absolutely. And again, unfortunately, as cool as the theory is, it is all disproven by obviously what happens um, in the second film of Frozen, where you find out that the parents were on a mission to basically kind of get the answers for Elsa um, and that they did die. Uh, but I do actually really like this whole theory. It's very kind of all over the place and the timing is a little bit meh. um <laughs> it's, it's kind of like you could side but... and look at it and it's possible kind of thing i also feel that the Fro frozen 2 that whole their parents were on a mission to get answers for elsa was kind of a 
people criticized Elsa's parents for being abusive in the first film by basically saying, yes, repress your feelings, hold on to it, hide what you are, etc. Not realizing that actually that was coming yeah. across as abusive parenting. And so they had to sort of backtrack a bit and make the parents um, decent-ish people who weren't being emotionally abusive. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, like, I never really saw it as being emotionally abusive because when you say abuse, it sounds like it was on purpose. Um, I do think that they handled the whole thing wrong and the damage was done regardless. But I don't think it was done with any sort of intention. No, it wasn't done with malice. They were I think that's trying the thing, to help. Isn't it? Abuse generally is a pattern of behaviour. It's not one incident. It's not one thing. It's not one time your mm. parents freak out and tell you not to do something because you frightened them. It's it's an ongoing thing. And, um, you know, parents yeah. are just human and they're going to fuck up because that's what humans do. It's when you... The, the, it, it's, when, it's when it's, as I said, a pattern of behaviour that is done in, in a way that's either malicious or done entirely to benefit the parent without regard for the child. I think if we're defining it. Yeah. But yes, a lot of people can be like, oh, that's abusive. And I think they felt they had to... Disney felt they had to address that. Yeah. Which is why there's a little, perhaps, retconning, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so the next one, still with Frozen, is that Hans was brainwashed by the trolls. This is, this is disturbing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do remember seeing this one, which is that basically, get the fiancé out of the way is a line from the Fixer Upper song. Um, so the theory is that Hans wasn't... Uh, also, Hans wasn't apparently evil up until after this point. So Anna bumps into him early in the film, um, unseen by anyone else. He stares after her longingly. We know the trolls can alter memories and impulses. So the theory is that they decided Kristoff was a better match for Anna and fiddled with Hans's mind to get him out of the way by making him attempt regicide. It's like, if you're talking timeline, it's possible. Mm-hmm. And if, you, and if you're talking trolls, it's also possible. <laughs> um, I don't entirely buy this. Just Okay, part of me doesn't buy this because I don't want it to be true. But also I kind of don't mm. buy it because there was something a little bit too pat with hands to start with. So when he's talking to Anna, he's giving her all the answers she wants to hear because she desperately wants to be loved and have um, closeness with somebody, which makes her an, which makes her an easy yeah. target, unfortunately. And he wants to get close to the throne. So that's quite a good path for him. It's just that, you know, it, even with a lot of the other sort of in, insta-love matches in Disney, you have a moment where it's like, oh, actually, they don't disagree, they don't agree on this point. And it'll be a tiny little thing, but those little moments of disagreement make them more compatible. Whereas with him, every answer is is absolutely on the money of what she wants to hear. Yeah. And the the longing look after, I mean, we don't all just sort of suddenly break out into evil <laughs> smiles when, I mean, it, it, he could literally have been looking after her thinking, oh my God, it could be that easy. Like, there she is. She, this yeah, is perfect. I could have a throne of my you very know. own. Look at this place. This is, this is clearly a wealthy, wealthy state. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, great theory. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't believe it. 
Okay, um, right. The Evil Queen from Snow White and Mother Gothel were the same person. Obviously, Mother Gothel's from Rapunzel. So, in Snow White, we see the Evil yeah. Queen, um, in her disguise as Hag, fall from a cliff during a storm. Mm -hmm. But, as the saying goes, show me the body. We don't actually see for definite that she is dead. Um, she was already using magic yeah. to change her appearance, and she would do anything to remain young and beautiful. Uh, Snow White is set in Bavaria, although in fairness, Disney haven't definitely said that that's where it is, but I think we're supposed to think that because of the hills and the woods, etc. Um, and Rapunzel yeah. is set in Germany, so that's not much more than the long walk. Uh, the Evil Queen survived her defeat somehow and then kidnapped Rapunzel, um, obviously for the use of her, her glowing magical hair. An, an alternate... <laughs> so that, I mean, I think that's part one of this. An alternate theory is that Megara from Hercules became Mother Gothel after Hercules died a hero's death and went to Elysium Fields. Um, Meg was consumed with bringing back what she had lost and would go to any lengths. Um, there is some sort of weight behind that last theory. The idea is that Meg, having already lost in love once before and, you know, <laughs> sold her soul basically into Hades' keeping and become Hades' sort of henchwoman, um, and then mm. Hercules obviously doing something heroic to get her free she had so much pinned on him that perhaps if he went off and died a hero's death and most of the heroes did in fact die young they didn't or relatively young they didn't live to great old age did they um no might have sent her spiraling down that that very dark line of thinking again but if that was true and she just like was wandering through the centuries sort of um plucking magic off people in order to turn herself young again and to prolong her life because she knew she wasn't ever going to be going to Elysium Fields. That's really fucking dark. It is. Um, and obviously this whole theory relies on the fact that we're just completely ignoring yeah. the mythology. Which, in fairness, Hercules uh, does. Yeah, obviously it does. Because obviously in the, in the mythology, uh, Meg dies. Uh, Hercules kills her. So... He doesn't mean to, but he, he does kill her and their children. Yeah. So if it was just based on how they are as characters, then I kind of sort of don't see either Hercules dying in that way, but also I kind of see Zeus granting some form where they could stay yeah. together. Um, I do kind of like the Snow White sort of idea, the only thing that makes me doubt it is the fact that the evil queen and mother gothel are very different yes you did see the evil queen obviously when she was in disguise um she had that whole sort of oh yes pet yeah. kind of thing but her natural state wasn't there's something a little bit more flirty something a little bit more playful is the wrong word uh, with Mother Gothel and with the Evil Queen, I could see her doing that for a very short period of time in order to get what she wanted, but I couldn't see her doing it long term. She was a little bit too ambitious, I think, yeah. to have changed, you know, changed her entire nature. But I do like the whole idea as a whole. Yeah. Um, as a side note on the whole Snow White thing. The, a dark theory I saw was that Snow White in fact died after she ate the apple and when the prince turns up and kisses her that's 
the signal for her to enter the afterlife. And then, of course, he carries her off to this glowing palace at the end, which is the afterlife. Yeah. And it's like, I don't like that theory, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. That's not great. So many of the really dark theories are the character died. Um, obviously, I haven't done all of those, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, here's another example of this dark theory. Uh, so... Moana died during the storm at the beginning of her journey. So after the storm, Moana doesn't interact with any living person again, only deities like Maui the um, and sort of different sort of magical beings like the Kakamora and Taka. Uh, Moana only returns to her, in fact she even goes into yeah. the underworld. Uh, so Mo- Moana only returns to her island after bringing the heart of Tefiti back to her. So did Tefiti bring her back to life? Was the necklace Moana's grandmother gave her the link which allowed her to return to the island? See, if we were looking at this as a piece of folklore, I would immediately go, yeah, that's clearly what happened because <laughs> that would be very folkloric. Yeah. It, 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 it absolutely would, particularly because, yeah, it, if we also... She, Moana is a, is a perfect example of the hero's journey. And she literally does step into the other world. Um, you know, it is full of magic and God and stuff like that. So it makes sense that if it was literally the other world, she was in in that spiritual space because she was, she yeah. was dead. Um, it would kind of also explain the storm and that the storm, the sea is her is her friend, um, but it it also has its nature, you know, and so it. You can either read that as basically it's saying, yes, the sea is your friend, but it is also the sea. Or you can read it as saying the sea is like, right, well, to do this journey, I'm going to need to kill you. Yeah, the whole thing with water being a transformational element and a crossing place, um, which is what a lot, yeah. an awful lot of the older mermaid stories were about. Yeah, and not, you know, as well as that, when she le- leaves um, the island she is following the spirit of her grandmother. She's literally following her into, into yeah. the realm of the dead and then sees her grandmother again. Um, so I kind of like this theory. I don't think it's what Disney were actually going for, but I think in terms of a story, it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I think it does. I kind of like the theory. I agree. I don't think it's what Disney intended, but I think they kind of got there anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um... <laughs> You, you like the last one. This one's pretty wild, but also makes sense. Um, <laughs> Aladdin takes place in a post-apocalyptic future. So, at first it seems that Aladdin <laughs> takes place roughly somewhere in the Middle East during the medieval era. Um, but upon waking the genie, waking up, sorry, the genie complains that 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. It's possible he had been imprisoned yeah. since pre-agrarian times, so before we started, you know, tilling and farming, etc., um, except yeah. that that would put him back in a time before we were working bronze. So where did his lamp come from? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we weren't making bronze lamps during the Stone Age. So added to which, the genie then references a lot of 90s pop culture. I mean, you remember his Sch- his Schwarzenegger impression, for example, and his fruit machine impression. Yeah. Um, one explanation is that Aladdin takes place in an arid post-apocalyptic future, which has been technologically bumped back to medieval times after a devastating nuclear attack 
and just had to rebuild from the ground up over 10,000 years. Um, in addition to this, the video game also includes street signs which would not have existed in medieval Middle East, but could be remnants of a lost world. There's also the possibility that the entire story never happened, of course, that it was fabricated by the salesman at the beginning of the film to make you buy the lamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which definitely has some merit to it. <laughs> I have to admit, though, when you look at that, I, mean, I think, it, obviously, they were, they were, they just told Robin Williams to get on with it and be the genie, and then they would sort of not film, but, you know, create around him because that's what you do when you've got a comedy yeah. giant like that. And it worked really well for the film. Yeah. Everyone found it really funny. But when you look at it in terms of pure storytelling logic, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. And a part of that, I think it could also work in the fact that it's a it's yeah. a fairy tale and therefore it does exist out of yeah. time. You know, so maybe that is is it. But yes, if you look at it too logically, it doesn't make any sense. You could also argue that actually um, the whole thing does work. The the genie is the one who lives outside of yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do have a fun fact, though, about Aladdin. Uh, where do you think... Okay, so first of all, um, the original story. Uh, is it part of the Arabian Nights? Is it part of... One thousand and one um, nights. Oh, I thought it was originally, but I'm not absolutely sure. I thought I heard. I, yeah, I think you're going to joke my memory in a minute. But I think it was. I was originally told it when I was about nine years old, as part of a thousand and one Arabian Nights. But I don't think that's necessarily where it originated. Yeah, it absolutely didn't. It wasn't part of the original collection of stories. In fact, the only copies of it that we find sort of as you know among uh sort of collect among kind of collections um were the ones that were translated from the i think i think it was english um so but it was sort of written much later on by an actual guy who'd been traveling through and i can't remember whether he was also um Arabic um, or whether he had just been traveling through the Middle East. Um, now there's every possibility that it was taking elements from folklore and things like that but it wasn't actually originally part of uh, the Thousand and One Nights um, though perhaps there are elements of it which were which was part of a story that was included in the original One Thousand and One Nights. Obviously we don't have all of the One Thousand and One no. Nights stories. Um, the other interesting thing is, where is it set? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, I mean, you can say Alibaba and the Forty Thieves was has a lot more sort of cultural context than Aladdin does, whereas Aladdin's got some stuff in it that, you know, if I'm remembering the, the text as I know it correctly, um, is a bit more sort of nebulous. For example, the fact he marries the princess, and yet the princess doesn't appear to have servants in the house. So, so when the... The peddler goes past saying new lamps for old, etc. He's um she comes mm. down and swaps it herself. I'm like, what if she's a princess and he's married into the royal family, which by the way is a very sparse royal family because there would have been X number of wives and god knows how many children. It at that point it starts to fall yeah. apart a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Um and what's the thing is that actually in the original text it's meant to be China. It's actually set in China. Um, now, 
they kind of would sometimes use China just to sort of so they'd say China and it would be it was meant to be used in terms of saying this is a, a you know a far off almost magical yeah. land so they weren't necessarily thinking of China as an actual country but it is originally set in China in Asia yeah that's completely different yeah <laughs> so but of course you think a thousand and one nights are right so it must be sent in Arabia it's not which you know um... you be forgiven if you didn't know that it was part of the thousand it wasn't part of the thousand and one nights you would think well it's got to be around that sort of middle east area hasn't it somewhere and Exactly. Yeah, and, and to be yeah, I I definitely thought that until I sort of looked a little bit more into it. And uh, oh my god, it's, it's <laughs> actually it is actually set in China. Um, <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> the next one. Ariel's mother was murdered by Captain Hook, and Ariel and Hercules were cousins. Okay, so sit down <laughs> for this one. So. Queen Athena is missing from The Little Mermaid. It's a spin-off film... Uh, sorry, it's in a spin-off film that we learn that King Triton lost his queen to pirates, which is partly why he hates humans. Now, in the Disneyverse, we have a very well-known pirate, Captain James Hook. And in Never Neverland, there is a lagoon which is full of mermaids, one of which bears more than a passing resemblance to Ariel. In addition, Hercules is the son of Zeus. King Triton is the son of Poseidon. While these stories don't take place in the same time period, we know that King Triton had ruled for hundreds of years. This would make Ariel and Hercules second cousins. They also have similar storylines. Both want some both want somewhere to belong to, but feel and sorry but feel like outsiders both are the children of gods or very powerful beings and both possibly give up immortality or perhaps just a very long life to stay with the human that they love now i am fully prepared to believe this <laughs> yeah <theory. laughs> actually particularly since i went and i had a look at because i haven't watched peter pan in probably a few decades um but i had a look at the mermaids from the lagoon mm. and one of them is very you know same sort of tail fin color same hair color it's like there's not as much detail but yeah. it's entirely possible kind of thing yeah there is only one problem with this theory in terms of clearly the periods in which events are taking place it's very clear that obviously with Unless, again, we think of Neverland outside of time, which is entirely possible because yeah. it's essentially fairy. Um, that is taking place during the late Victorian period. Um, and clearly with The Little Mermaid, it looks like it's yeah. the Georgian period. Yeah, it does. So... That wouldn't work. But again, it does sort of work if we say, right, well, it's outside of time. Or just say that even if the mermaid who happened to look a little bit like Ariel wasn't her mother, yeah. it could have still been a whole thing. Okay, uh, while we're on the subject of Peter Pan, uh, Captain Hook is not the villain mm -hmm. and Peter Pan is the angel of death. So we're finishing with the dark theory. There are obviously hundreds of theories and we can go through all of them, but this is the last one that we're going to discuss today. Um, so one theory is that Peter Pan is a yeah. spirit of mischief who lures or kidnaps children away to Never Neverland. He just wants to play and have fun, but children are meant to grow up. 
Um, there might be some inference that they grow up mentally even though their bodies don't mature, which is a whole other sort of really disturbing thing. Um, anyway, some of them grow tired of this, which Peter doesn't like, so he kills the ones who try to leave. <laughs> There's all sorts of spin-off fiction for Peter yeah. Pan where this does literally happen, I believe. Um, which would explain why the yeah. island isn't overrun with kids after all that time. I mean, you think about it, we don't know how long he's been there, and okay, this island is outside of time, but he turns up every sort of generation or so and, and nicks a few more children. So after all that time with none of them growing up and none of them dying or anything, the island would be absolutely overrun mm. with, with children. Um, it's obviously not. Um Anyways, apart from this, Captain Hook, Smee and the rest of the crew are children who manage to escape this fate and grow up, which explains why they are devoted to wiping Peter Pan out. Alternatively, Peter Pan arrives when a child dies and guides them to the afterlife, um, which is Never Neverland, where they will yeah. never grow up because they are dead. And there is, you know, H.M. Barry, his brother died when he was 13 years old. And a lot of people believe this is where he got the idea of, you know, never growing up. And it came with a sort of typical late Victorian, early Edwardian type of frame on it, if you like, whereby you think about a child dying and you try and get your head around it. And you make something a bit sad and beautiful of the whole thing, which is kind of where Peter Pan came from. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth remembering, of course, that Barry was Scottish. Yeah. Which meant that even though, you know, he was living and working within sort of certain circles in London and in sort of more urban areas um, in, in England, uh, he was familiar with and knew about a lot of folklore and things like that. Um you can tell that in his writings. He clearly has been influenced in ways that some of his other contemporaries weren't drawing on folklore. Uh, realistically, obviously, you do have the fairies themselves, but Peter is literally written kind of as a fairy creature. He he literally follows all of the conventions. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah. I I really do think it is. It's a story about you know. It's the whole changeling thing, yeah. um, and what does what is the whole changeling thing? The whole changeling thing is about the children who get abandoned because there are too many mouths to feed. The children who were not wanted, or the children who died unexpectedly. Um, and one can comfort themselves by saying, ah, but this isn't my child. My child was actually taken away by the fairies to a to another realm you know, of plenty, of, of joy, where they will never grow up, where they don't have to be adults. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do, I do kind of, a part of me really likes the theory of sort of the pirates being sort of the grown up, the, the kids who grew up, but I think when it comes to the Disney film, I really liked Peter Pan as a kid. Yeah, me too. And I just don't want to believe he is malicious. I think he's childish, but I don't think he's malicious. Um, he is clearly not human, but not cruel. Yeah. I mean, in terms of if you're going to take what is essentially a fairy tale and turn it on its head so that good is bad and bad is good kind of thing, unlike the idea of why the pirates might be what they're doing and where they are 
Um, but that wouldn't necessarily mean they were pirates, would it? Because they're just people on a ship. They haven't been out doing piracy. Yeah. What, what exactly are they pirating? <laughs> yeah, I mean, are, are there many other galleons for them to board? Um, the whole idea, I think, in the book is that they sailed in the, into the cove and then they couldn't leave again. Never Neverland wouldn't let them go. And there's an, there's an idea that Neverland wouldn't let them go simply because um, Pete, it, it revolves around Peter and Peter wants to play. And sometimes he wants to play pirates and swashbucklers. Yeah. Which means the pirates are basically kind of accessories to Peter's will. And that's another reason why they might not like him all that much. Yeah. There is, of course, also the idea that the pirates themselves aren't really real. Yeah. They are figments. They are an extension of Peter um, as well. And how he feels about grown-ups and things like that. And yeah. also the idea of, well, when, you know, when the when the boys get too old, Peter kills them. Um, I think that actually whenever I sort of look at that, I think it's he takes them back to the human realm. And that's what he means by killing them, because they will die there. They will grow up, they will die. And yeah. that's how he sees also growing up, you know. So There is there is something quite I mean, if we're talking about the book, certainly there is yeah. something a bit wistful and slight more sort of sinister adjacent it's whimsy isn't it there's yeah. there's a whimsical element to peter pan and whimsy is only really whimsy if it's also a little bit unsettling yeah yeah so yeah we've, we've started doing a deep dive into peter pan here which wasn't the intention um yeah. but yeah in terms of theories i think it's kind of a cool theory i'm not sure i'd buy it but i think it's a cool theory yeah <laughs> cool theory still murder uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much Okay. All right. I that is a really good one to end on. Um so I guess yeah, what do you guys think? Do you guys believe any of these theories? Do you have any more that you think are brilliant that you think we should have uh, covered? Do let us know. We love hearing from you. Uh before we go, it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week. Um and this week I would like to recommend uh the glass onion. Oh, I saw that, and I, you know, I was, I was trying to think. I've seen something recently I'd like to recommend, and I can't remember what it is. It was the glass <laughs> onion. So well done. Yeah. Um. So it is the sequel to Knives Out. It can be watched independently. You don't need to have watched Knives Out, uh, to get it. And it's brilliant. It's really, really, really good. Um. If you are sort of a fan of like Agatha Christie and stuff like that, there's almost the Agatha Christie element to it, but it's still modern, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's a beautifully crafted film. It's got some great moments of comedy um, and just fantastic acting as well. Also, I just want a, a moment of... Um... Loving the fact that Daniel Craig is essentially playing this gay detective and Hugh Grant apparently is his live-in boyfriend or husband or whatever and bakes for him. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just a tiny little throwaway thing. It's like, yeah, that's another element to the character and it's really cool. Yeah, I just also like the fact that when he gets sort of... <laughs> when Benoit Blanc gets annoyed, he just sits in the bath. <laughs> That was in the like, bath. Are you in Constantly. the bath again? Yes. <laughs> no. He's on his computer in the bath playing um what what is it? Like The Last of Us or something like that? I don't know. Uh anyway, it's highly recommended. It is very funny. It's very good. Um 
and it is on Netflix so do check that out yes and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.